Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organize lecture days once per month, where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers, so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. This episode features a lecture on the neuroscience of learning from Dr. Michelle Ellison. Michelle is a senior lecturer in psychology and education at the University of Cambridge. Her work integrates cognition, neuroscience, child development, and education into a multidisciplinary research program aimed at improving maths and science education. Michelle specializes in pairing laboratory-based research with classroom learning to better understand the mechanisms responsible for cognitive development and improving educational practice. Initially trained in developmental cognitive neuroscience, her interdisciplinary team of students and collaborators includes developmental scientists, cognitive scientists, neuroscientists, educators, chemists, biologists, and physicists. Enjoy the show. So I'm going to talk about the neuroscience of learning. And as I was thinking more and more about the session, I realized that I probably have to clarify that this includes memory. So within my field, there is a debate about are learning and memory exactly the same thing? They're not. So you can learn things without remembering that you've learned them. Um, But in terms of thinking about learning in maybe formal settings, which is what I will talk about today, quite oftentimes that learning requires some sort of expression of what you remember. So today, learning and memory will get kind of bunched up quite closely together. But in the research, they're not always the same. Uh, So that's a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, My research group is the Instruct Research Group, which is implementing new student and teacher resources using cognitive theory. As Niall said, we are integrating neuroscience, uh, psychology, and education. And I'm not the only person in my department at the Faculty of Education who do that. And I am always asked when I go away to just mention to people that we have various kinds of programs. This is our undergraduate degree, which has been um, reformulated recently. So a lot of people might not know that this exists. So there are three different tracks. Education, psychology, and learning is my track with a bit of neuroscience in there. There's an international development track, and then another one, which is English, education, drama, and the arts. And we have master's degrees that follow those tracks as well. So that's just my little quick advertisement. (laughs) So this is the plan for today. Uh, We have two sections. Sorry, this is not quite as bright on my screen. It's a little bit bright for you, but we won't have it up too long. So two main sections, um, uh, which will be about halfway through our session. So I'll give you a break in between these sessions. So the first one, we're going to talk about a little bit of neuroscience. And in the second half, we're going to talk about a few applications of this neuroscience to uh, our everyday learning and other kinds of educational practices. And so this work really falls at the crux between cognitive neuroscience, 
So although what we do in, in cognitive neuroscience is based very much on the real basic neuroscience research that often happens with animal models, most of what we're doing in cognitive neuroscience is with humans and cognition, although there's some animal models in that. Then we've got psychology, which is kind of how individuals behave, and teaching. And as those three areas intersect, so the intersection between cognitive neuroscience and psychology, kind of a neuropsychology between psychology and education as the field of educational psychology, between cognitive neuroscience and teaching is the newly emergent field of educational neuroscience. And then when all of those three are put together, it's kind of a science of learning in terms of thinking about these three pieces is all important for what we think of as learning. Of course, it gets studied in lots of different ways, depending on which area people are coming from. And because I'm a psychologist, I'm studying it quite often from a classic neuroscience or from a classic experimental psychology sort of point of view. So within the neuroscience, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the structures and the brain that are involved with learning. I know this is your second session, and I will probably repeat some bits that are linked to brain structures and processes. But as you'll find out when we talk about learning, repetition is quite good for learning. So I'll just help reinforce the things that you heard already. So we'll talk a little bit about some basics of, of structures in the brain, thinking about gray and white matter. We're going to talk about things like synaptogenesis and pruning, and then thinking a little bit about memory, what is memory from the way that cognitive neuroscientists and psychologists study it, and something called long-term potentiation. And I'll talk about what all of those mean as we go through. And then the applications, we're going to talk a little bit about some neuromyths, what might be some of the best ways to learn, and an area out of cognitive psychology, desirable difficulties, and kind of think about how that links to what we know from the neuroscience. So this is just a little bit getting us all on the same page. Um, so this is a side view of a brain. It's of someone looking to my right. So our eyes are here, our ears are about here. The kind of, some of the areas that we'll refer to Today, just to kind of give you a sense, we'll talk a little bit about some of the areas on the side. We'll talk a little bit about the visual system. And we'll talk kind of a lot about the prefrontal cortex um, in terms of its role in learning. But what actually happens in terms of learning, as I give away the punchline, is it's involved, all areas of our brain are kind of involved in learning, depending on what kinds of specialisms we're talking about. So this is a picture linked to development in terms of the changes in the brain that happen uh, across development. And this is starting from five until 20. Now this isn't a session on brain development, but a lot of the things that we see happening in development follow the processes that we see when it comes to learning. And in many ways, what we did as infants and children was to kind of start the process of learning about our world as our brains are kind of getting built up. And we continue those processes now as adults as well. But these are kind of some of the changes that are happening and they become important as we think a little bit about learning. 
what basically happens is blue from a developmental point of view is more developed and there's a little video that I've got on a loop which is kind of showing how that changes across the outside of the brain which is called the cortex and it's the cortex that really plays a big role in terms of, of learning and it's the bit that isn't developed where different areas develop at different times which we'll see but it goes through a lot of change throughout infancy, childhood, at adolescence and it still has a flexibility in adulthood that's why we can still learn things no matter what our age it, ages are but this is kind of showing some of the changes that occur now those changes that occur are usually about the ratio difference between gray matter and white matter so this little graphic here is kind of showing the amount of gray matter and those of you who have studied this are thinking well the blue is more developed and that's less gray matter than the pink which is less developed so what actually happens is we have some of our brain structures are kind of disappearing in childhood and adolescence but that's quite an important part of the way that our brain is kind of structuring what we know and structuring a way to, to represent our experiences. So this is kind of what happens and I'm going to explain grey and white matter in a moment for any of you who aren't quite sure what it is. So grey matter, I kind of gave you the clue already, it actually starts out, so this is from 0 to 90 and it starts out high and it gradually decreases throughout childhood, adolescence and adulthood. It's kind of a stabilization from about 50 or so onward, but it's kind of gradually decreasing. Now what happens with white matter is quite a different pattern. So we start out with not a lot of it, and we get more and more of it, and we're kind of at our peak in kind of 30 to 40, and then unfortunately and we kind of ride that peak for a while and then we start to decline slowly later on and these the the combination of these two is really important in the mechanisms that are also involved in learning so let's talk a little bit about gray matter and white matter so gray matter is basically our neurons and their connections so this is one neuron, which in this example is a neuron that's sending information to a receiving neuron. And this little tiny square here is a synapse, which is where they come together. And the ways that electrons send information to each other is through a general term called an action potential. And that's a combination, well, it's chemical but it also involves kind of charged ions. So there's an electrical signal that comes with that. And so that's what we think of when we're representing kind of as neurons are sharing information that there's this kind of electrical pulse that goes through them. And that's how what some of the things that we measure in terms of brain processing involves measuring the kind of electrical, electrophysiological activity that's happening. Now we'll talk a little bit about some of that a little bit later, but the main thing is gray matters are neurons and they're connected by synapses as our new word. So our neurons are actually decreasing from you know, early childhood through to adulthood, which doesn't seem like a good thing until we think about why they're decreasing, which we'll talk about in just a minute. 
So the other stuff we have, the white matter, is this additional stuff that gets added on to those neurons. So this would be like a sending neuron, and it's sending information. And it gets these little bits of what are called myelin, and there are different kinds of cells that make up myelin, but they're kind of just like fatty sorts of tissue. And they help the cell transmit information faster. So what's happening across development is we're losing cells. So the, the cells that get connected and the connections that get used stay. The cells that don't get connected or don't get used get cleaned up. And then that extra space get, gets filled in with this white matter, this myelin. And this is what helps us make kind of faster decisions, access information more quickly, is by having this this fatty tissue. And what it does is it acts a bit like an insulator in terms of making it so that the information actually jumps from one of these little nodes of Renvier to the other. And that's much faster than the information having to travel all the way through. And I think of it a little bit like the difference between a, a single carriageway and a motorway in terms of the difference in the speed at which information can travel. Now what we know so far is that the development of myelin is linked to maturation. So with children, it's linked to kind of getting older. There are certain times when we produce a lot of myelin. Now that could be biological signaling, but it could also be those times when we are producing a lot of myelin are linked to times when we are learning a lot as children. There's a lot of information that children are putting together and learning, and so we see that those two things in some ways get confounded, they get mixed up because they're both happening at the same time. But the other thing we know from research with adults and, and other forms of research is that practice is also really important. So what basically happens is connections are made, those connections that get used again and again, the practice pit, are the ones that get myelinated. And then they become much more accessible later. So a couple of other just background things that happen um, is it, within this story, just to kind of make sure we've got a few of the key ideas. So I've talked a bit about myelination. We have two other things that are happening. So synaptogenesis is the formation of lots of connections. And that does happen at certain times in childhood, especially we see these real bursts of lots of connections being made. and then. A bit later, the connections that aren't used get, get cleaned up. And that process is called synaptic pruning. So that's where the cleanup, if you will, kind of happens. So I'm going to show you two examples from two different areas of the brain to kind of show you that pattern across age, so, so we can kind of think about how that's happening, at least um, for children. So this is the visual cortex. So that's actually back here, the back, back of our brain, which doesn't always make sense given that our eyes are here, but that is how it works. Now the visual cortex goes through a huge amount of synapse formation early on and right before birth and then right after birth. And for any of you who have had children or spend time with infants, you probably know that at first they don't 
seem able to focus on things that aren't about this far away. So when we're born, we don't have kind of a fully, fully focused eyes. And that's happening alongside of this kind of connecting up. And there were some studies in the late 60s um, with cats, which we wouldn't probably be able to get through an ethics committee today, where they basically did a variety of experiments on the cats in terms of having one eye sutured shut versus two eyes sutured shut to see what happens in terms of this sort of pattern. And it make the input that the eyes are getting matters here. So it's not just that this is some sort of age-related thing, that's important, but the input is also really, really important because that input is setting up those, um, which connections get used with time. And then there's a little bit of a, a kind of a stabilization, and then it starts to decline a little bit as we get into adulthood. And this isn't so much about that vision is declining, it's just that the visual system has kind of found its, its pathways. It's kind of the, you know, the roads are built, they're good roads, and they kind of stay using those roads. So another example, another area of the brain is the prefrontal cortex, which is this bit right here, right, kind of at the bottom of your forehead and just above your eyes. This is the last area of the brain to finish complete development. Um, the rough age is about 25, and that has uh, spawned a number of conversations about should adolescence also end at 25, so there's some press, popular press coverage of that, potentially thinking, well, maybe adolescence shouldn't end until the, pre until the brain is kind of finished with development. That's a bigger issue than today, but it was research on the prefrontal cortex that starts the conversation related to that debate. And the prefrontal cortex, through the first few years of life, is doing all sorts of things in terms of the number of synapses that occur. So there's a lot of pruning that happens, and then there's a little bit more, and there's continued pruning that kind of happens around the end of adolescence at the start of adulthood uh, after this point. And this is the part of our brain that kind of helps to control our attention. It helps us make complex decisions. And it also helps us kind of keep ourselves in check when we're trying to learn. So this is a part of the brain where we think, well, actually, there's this you know, huge reduction in connections, but that's linked to big gains in terms of thinking skills. And so it is that reduction that's allowing for, if you will, more myelination in the same space. And so the connections that are used get, um, get insulated and they're faster and the brain in essence becomes more efficient. So I've been picking up a little bit on the prefrontal cortex. I'm not going to talk about it too much. This is the kind of lots of things that are kind of psychology ideas of, of what the prefrontal cortex is involved in. Um, but what's really important from research that comes out of, of work that had focused on the prefrontal cortex is an idea in recent years about how interconnected different parts of the brain are. So this is just a, a 2D example of this being the prefrontal cortex and the kind of pathways that exist in terms of communication with the prefrontal cortex and lots of other areas of the brain. One area 
that is important for learning and memory is the hippocampus in here. And so there are connections within the hippocampus as well as lots of other pieces in the limbic system, which is kind of beyond where we're at. But just the key idea is this interconnection between things. So I'm going to show you a couple of videos with, which are linked to some new science technology showing the pathways that exist. So they're on a loop, so they'll kind of keep going, basically. This one I've got playing first, and what this one shows really well is how organized those pathways actually are. So we don't have this hodgepodge of, of highways being built. Instead, we've got quite a lot of organization and efficiency in how those interconnections between various parts of the brain emerge. But what this picture kind of might suggest is that those interconnections only happen in kind of the middle of the brain, which isn't the case. So the next video, which I'll unfortunately now two to look at, shows just how many of those kind of superhighways are, are around the brain. There's a lot of interconnectivity between various areas of the brain. And it's that interconnectivity that is important for early learning, and it's using those connections that becomes important for learning um, in late adolescence, adulthood, and that sort of thing, when we've got the connections and we're then using them to help us learn new information. So this is, I, I find this quite exciting because this is very, quite recent sorts of technology in terms of those interconnections. Yeah, they're part of cortex. They're not important for us because <laughs> they do interrupt, but I couldn't find one that didn't have the yellow blobs. Sorry. <laughs> this one I think is a little bit better because it, it, it does show that. Okay, so a little bit of a break from the, the kind of foundations of neuroscience we have to talk about, to think about memory and learning, and to talk for a moment about what memory and learning are in terms of how psychology and cognitive neuroscientists think of them. So there are lots of different kinds of memory from a cognitive point of view. Um, these different kinds of memory might matter in different ways for different things that we might be learning. Um, so some examples would be what people call declarative or sometimes semantic memory, which is the stuff we know about the world around us. You know, we know that London is the capital of the United Kingdom, for example. Uh, procedural are things that are linked to skills or habits, associations, being able to drive is a procedural memory, being able to walk is also probably fits within procedural memory. So it's the kinds of things we're able to do. If, you're, if you play a sport regularly, then you know, eventually certain actions within that sport also become quite procedural. Conceptual is kind of an added element to declarative, so it's being able to kind of think about the hows and whys of known facts. So we could question when I said London is the capital of the United Kingdom, the, well, how did that come about and why is it the capital versus other things? And that gets us into all sorts of debates about history and philosophy. And that's kind of where the conceptual sort of memory piece comes in. Episodic is our own personal history and the events that make up our lives and the things that we've experienced. 
And uh, the last sort of memory that I want to highlight because it becomes quite important for learning is something called working memory. And it's basically, it's a kind of a short-term processing space, which is the integration between what we already know and the new information that is coming at us. So I'm going to dig into what working memory is a little bit more so we can think about that. So a big model for working memory comes from Alan Badley. And there are kind of three big elements of this model. So the bottom part is the stuff we know. So some examples in that bottom part is uh, visual sem semantics, which is kind of our, our knowledge of you know, how a chair works. You've come in and you, you saw the object that is a chair and you knew how to operate and use it and sit on it. And so that's the kind of visual semantics. It's the knowledge about stuff we see. Um, there's language, which is also quite important for learning. And then there's things like our episodic memory, our long-term memory, the stuff we know, that kind of declarative <coughs> memory of facts and that sort of thing. And then there's this intermediate phase, which is the information that's coming at us. And there are different kinds of pieces of information that come at us. The two that were the initial part of this model in the 70s are what Badley and Hitch called a visual spatial sketch pad. And that's just basically all the visual stuff that's coming at us. And spatial is, you know, knowing how far away it is in terms of whether, how much you have to pay attention to it. The phonological loop is all the auditory stuff that's coming at us. And the third bit that Alan Badley added in a second iteration is called an episodic buffer, which is basically um, something that can kind of help us make some, make some links to all of this in terms of what might be important to pay attention to. So you might be walking down a busy street like Euston Road and you hear the traffic and it's going by and it's going by and it's not until you decide that you want to cross the road does it really be import become important to pay attention to that traffic. And then what Badley and, and Hitch as well have suggested is there's this other thing called the central executive, which is kind of like, you know, a big executive in a business. It is controlling how we decide what's important. And it's helping us change our attention to the things that matter in, in the world around us. And in a learning situation, it's attending to the things that we need to attend to to learn something new. So this is, I think, in terms of thinking about some of the underlying processes with learning and kind of how learning and memory go hand in hand, I think the working memory example, forgetting about what all of those names mean, that's probably not as important, but that there's really a, a way in which we make sense of the what's coming at us now, link that to what we already know, and make decisions about what we do about it. And the central executive is the prefrontal cortex by and large. Not solely, but there is the prefrontal cortex seems to play a big role in helping us make some of these decisions about what to attend to and what not to attend to. So we might have visual information coming in, being processed by our visual cortex. We have auditory information coming in and being processed by our temporal lobes. Um, and it's the central executive, the prefrontal cortex, that is 
taking on board all that information and helping us make some decisions about what, what we should attend to, what we should do next. And that's part of the reason why I, I highlighted all of those connections, because those connections really matter, because that information gets fed up to the prefrontal cortex, and then decisions kind of get fed back in terms of where, how we're allocating our, our kind of cognitive processing. So a couple of other things uh, before we go back to the neuroscience linked to memory. It's kind of the things that we study. This is, these are the terms we use in cognitive psychology on kind of the formation of memory and then a little bit about forgetting memories. So there are two, three different processes that become quite important for forming memories. The first one is encoding, taking in information from the world around us and, and identifying which of that might be important. We'll talk about, um, especially in the second half, but a little bit with the neuroscience in the first half, about how repeated practice is really quite important for, for learning. And then elaboration is making connections between what we already know and in some ways filling in the gaps. Um, later, whether they be accurate or not. And then within forgetting, we've got a couple of things that happen. One is that our memories tend to decay over time. So the longer we are from something, the more likely it is that some aspects have been forgotten. And then we can also have interference, where basically the information that we already know gets in the way of learning some new stuff as well. And we'll kind of explore this a little bit in a couple of slides, some of the forgetting elements. But first, what I want to do is go back to the neuroscience and think about, well, what is happening beyond the story I've given you so far, which is, you know, things get connected. What's kind of going on at the small kind of neuronal level to help those connections come together? And the mechanism that we think at the moment, based on our knowledge, is responsible for learning and, me and memory is something called long-term potentiation. So potentiation is basically this general idea of strengthen or to make potent. And so this is actually kind of making that connection active, if you will. And so what basically happens is this is two neurons connected up this is some exchange of chemicals that happens at that meeting point, which was the synapse. And what's basically happening is that as that connection is activated, as that action potential keeps going through that connection and keeps it active, there are certain kinds of chemical, uh, no, I don't want to say mechanisms, there are chemical events that are happening, which we'll see in the next slide a little more detail, some chemical events that are happening that help to create a strengthened connection between those neurons. And that links to a very old idea coming out of the first half of the 20th century by Hebb, by Donald Hebb, which has now been called Hebbian learning, which is this basic idea that comes from a quote from Hebb, which is cells that fire together, wire together. And that's the, the, that this potentiation, this this action potential moving across and doing so repeatedly helps those two stay together. So let's 
hear a little bit about how that happens. So I have a little two minute, um, two minute neuroscience video and I have links of other videos at the end of the slides that you can have after the session. Um, but this I think is quite good because it's a beautiful animation and a, and a quick description of what is long-term potentiation. Welcome to Two Minute Neuroscience, where I explain neuroscience topics in two minutes or less. In this installment, I will discuss long-term potentiation, or LTP. LTP is a process by which synaptic connections between neurons become stronger with frequent activation. LTP is thought to be a way in which the brain changes in response to experience, and thus may be a mechanism underlying learning and memory. There are a number of ways in which LTP can occur. The best-known mechanism involves a glutamate receptor known as the NMDA receptor. In NMDA receptor-dependent LTP, glutamate release first activates a subtype of glutamate receptor known as the AMPA receptor. NMDA receptors are found nearby these AMPA receptors, but are not activated by low levels of glutamate release because the ion channel of an NMDA receptor is blocked by a magnesium ion. If frequent action potentials cause greater stimulation of AMPA receptors, however, this will cause the postsynaptic neuron to depolarize, which eventually causes the voltage-dependent magnesium blockage of the NMDA receptor to be removed, allowing calcium ions to flow in through the NMDA receptor. This influx of calcium initiates cellular mechanisms that cause more AMPA receptors to be inserted into the neuron's membrane. The new AMPA receptors are also more responsive to glutamate and allow more positively charged ions to enter the cell when activated. Now the postsynaptic cell is more sensitive to glutamate because it has more receptors to respond to it. Additionally, there are thought to be signals that travel back across the synapse to stimulate greater levels of glutamate release. All this makes the synapse stronger and more likely to be activated in the future. This process is also associated with changes in gene transcription in the neuron, which can lead to the production of new receptors or modifications to the structure of the cell. These changes seem to be important for making the increased responsiveness of LTP long-lasting. So the, the basic notion, but a little bit of the chemistry, the biochemistry behind it, but what's basically happening is that it's kind of, what happens in the brain is that the winners keep winning a lot more. So if, if you've got a sustained action potential, that then kind of creates a situation where it's now even more sensitive to those sorts of action potentials and the long-term the LTP is, is going even longer. And so what is basically happening in the brain is that those connections that exist, they become really, really strong, and sometimes to the detriment of new connections as well. And so this is the, the, the early winners continue to win even more because they get more resources by that kind of chemical exchange that is happening between the neurons. Okay, so one of the ways that that links to memory is that because of these connections, our memory doesn't work quite like we might think it would, like a tape recorder or a film, but instead our memory is very much about pulling various things together. And that also means that we make assumptions when we pull various things together. So I'm going to give you a little bit more of kind of how memories might be structured. This is based a little bit more on a psychology terminology. 
but we tend to organize our memories by the stuff we already know about the world. So a very famous uh, child psychologist, Jean Piaget, came up with this notion of schemas. This is an example. So within a schema, we might think that birds have all these different kinds of features, and those match on or not to actual objects. And it's also why it's harder for kids and sometimes adults to classify some kinds of, if we think of the bird category, some kinds of things into the bird category. So if my bird category includes things like it flies, then when I learn that some birds don't fly, I have to kind of readjust what that means. And that becomes harder because I might have had a lot of experience seeing, well, the bird is flying. So that must be what makes a bird. Now those schemas kind of build into concepts, which is the bird concept or other kinds of concepts that exist in the world and how we kind of see the world working around us. And those concepts sometimes also get grouped into various kinds of categories of related sorts of objects or things or ideas. And our memories tend to kind of hook on to these sorts of things and we tend to make a lot of assumptions based on the kinds of information that we already have. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of an example that kind of foreshadows a little bit the next section on learning in classrooms, but it's kind of thinking a little bit about how these strong connections that we might have from a variety of experiences can get in the way when we're trying to learn stuff that doesn't quite match those, um, match those early experiences. So one of the key ways that we might have to do that is what some people call conceptual change. So it's being able to modify how our, our concepts and our categories about the world work. And for some things, it's really hard. So um, Niall mentioned I do some work in science learning and science is a place where we see a lot of this. And um, it can be called a misconception or a naive conception. I like naive conception because it may just be I don't know about this idea yet and I've used my everyday experiences to, to shape my understanding about something in, that doesn't quite work in science. And a good example, if we think about the history of science, is the difference between Newtonian physics and Einsteinian physics. Now, I'm not a physics expert, so that's all I'm going to say about those two differences, but it is there's a real transition in thinking that goes on between the way Newton viewed things like gravity and the way Einstein viewed physics. And I think those who are experts in physics would take that even further into other areas that I'm not prepared to talk about. And quite often, conceptual change is hard. And one of the reasons for that is that we've had experiences that have reinforced the old ideas and to get rid of that connection becomes really hard. And we have to abandon that and form new connections that are just as strong, if not stronger. And so this is why learning can be a challenge. And it can be a challenge for all of us. So it can be a challenge for children, and it can be a challenge for adolescents, and it can be a challenge for adults, depending on what change is required. But that's kind of an example of how, if we think about long-term potentiation, those winning connections, they still stay active. They still have a lot of kind of influence on our thinking. 
And to diminish the influence of an idea that's maybe not quite right takes a lot of work. So here's an example. This was um, created by the Smithsonian in the US as, as an example of conceptual change. these two balls at the same time, which do you think would hit the ground first? Oh, oh, oh I, I know this one. The basketball would hit the ground first. And what makes you think that, Justine? This one time, I tried to dump confetti on my baby brother, who kind of crawled like a snail through mud, and it took forever for it to reach the ground, so I know that lighter things fall more slowly. It's basic physics. But all objects fall towards Earth at the same rate, no matter what their mass. That's like falling 101. So I'm going to, I'm pausing it there. If you're really curious to find out the rest of the video, you can watch it later um, where they give some tips, uh, which we will talk about as well in the second half. But the idea here was to illustrate a really important point about how experience shapes learning. And those early experiences can kind of get us into corners that people who have more information about something like gravity in this example might appreciate is not quite right. But as part of observing the world, which children are really good at, we're not quite as good as they are at, at really making keen observations about what's going on in kind of the physical space. The student that was an example was really good at thinking about, yeah, this, this confetti was really slow, it was really slow. So they've made the assumption that small falls much more slowly than big, which isn't quite right. It's about a bunch of other things in terms of why the confetti fell more slowly. But these kinds of, basically, the kind of the, what we've learned already, the way things get encoded early on, have an impact on how easy it is to kind of add in additional information later. And what they talk about in this is, is one of the um, solutions to trying to help go from an early idea to an advanced idea is really having lots of hands-on interactions with things that almost doing little experiments in the kind of physics sense, but actually having some hands-on interactions with things that help you learn the new stuff. So last, 
uh, slide before the break is kind of another example of the things that we've been talking about already. This is quite an old model of memory and how kind of memory and if we think about longer term learning might come together. So we've got, we already talked about the sensory input. So this is the information that's coming in from the world around us. We, that kind of comes in and it gets integrated with what we already know. So we've got the working memory kind of idea embedded into this model, but not quite as working memory. Well, we've got this kind of sensory memory. We've got the central executive deciding whether or not to pay attention or not. And so information that we don't pay attention to is lost. So you might find you're on a trip, you're driving. Suddenly you can't quite remember the last minute or two or five. Um, and it's not because you haven't been paying attention to driving. You have been, but you haven't really been paying attention to all the other stuff that's been going on alongside of focusing on the car. If we attend to stuff that tends to put information in kind of a short-term memory store, um, and it's where, that's kind of the gate, if you will, in terms of longer-term learning. If we don't rehearse that information, it gets lost. But if we do kind of rehearse it, it gets encoded. One of my favorite examples of this um, is also around car cars. And I know we're in London, uh, and I, I don't drive a car either, but this is still my favorite example, which is if you drive a car or even a bicycle, and you've got a big space where you park your bicycle. So we've come up from Cambridge today, and we have a massive cycle store at our station. And it's so massive that you can never be in the same spot on, di on differing days. And we're really good if we parked our car, we've parked a bicycle, at knowing at the end of the day or at the end of, if we go to a shopping center, at the end of our shopping trip, where our car was. But if we go somewhere and park our bicycle or a car in a similar, in the same car park every day, but always in a different space, you can probably, you're pretty good at remembering today. You can probably remember yesterday. If you go much further than that, it's really hard to remember unless you have the same exact space all the time. We efficiently get rid of that extra stuff. It's not needed. And so that's that unrehearsed information, stuff that's not practiced gets lost. Now, if you felt like it was a real challenge to remember where you parked your car or your bicycle every day for a year and you rehearse that, you will probably remember where you parked your bicycle or your car every day. So we've got a little bit of the rehearsal that's going on in short-term memory that leads to remembering or encoding. And the other piece that becomes really important that we'll talk about in the second half is this idea of retrieval. Because the very act of remembering something makes it more likely that you'll remember it in the future. And that's also linked in terms of the ideas related to the action potential and long-term potentiation, because if we're activating a memory of something or activating something we've learned, we're activating those connections and we're making it more likely that those connections are going to be activated in the future. And so retrieval becomes really important for helping to further encode memories that are stored more longer term. And of course, there's a little bit of information that can be lost over time. So the last thing, because now it really is a time for a break, is to remind you that attention is one of the starting factors, because it's what we attend to 
that helps us in terms of learning. And that although I'm not going to talk about it, there's quite a lot of evidence that suggests that students at all ages, I mean, this is Calvin as an example, who have difficulty managing their attention, uh, where he's kind of lost track of time and says, well, I hope the teacher didn't say anything important. But children who have difficulty and students who have difficulty managing attention do find learning much more challenging and can often have more problems with learning. Now, I'm not talking about that, but that is kind of a one clear stage where we see these early on difficulties that individuals might have affecting what memories are stored. Okay, so with that, I'm going to welcome you to do a break. I think because you had a short lunch break, we, how about if we do 10 minutes? So it's 10 to 2 now. So if we start back at 2 o'clock, I will go back to the quickly if you want to do it. The questions. Oops, sorry. I'm. I'll put this up for just a minute or so if you want to do the questions. Now your data is going to be a bit biased because you've learned a few things, but that's all right. <laughs> I won't keep track of who, who says what when. And I will put the data from the group up to have in the next session. So off you go for a break. Who asked about the slides? The slides will be available through the weekend university after today's session. And I did the the quick and dirty getting the data up onto the slides, but I'll do a slightly better version so it's easier to read um, for, for you to take with you. So this is, this is really the quick and dirty version, so it's not easy to read, but I'll walk you through kind of the, the main bits. So there were 10 statements, and the options were agree, disagree, or don't know. These 10 statements are the order that I put them, but you saw them all in a random order, so that the ordering hopefully wouldn't influence your, uh, your decisions. This is the agree, and then this is the number of disagree. I'm just going to focus on the agree, and I'm going to focus on a couple of bits, because then I'm going to think about this a little bit more. So um, of the 10 things that are here, seven are what people in cognition and, and cognitive neuroscience called neuromyths. And these are things that have kind of, based on sometimes, you know, decent ideas at the start, have kind of been reimagined, re I suppose, in ways that neuroscientists don't think is, is quite a good representation of, of what's happening in terms of neuroscience. So the first seven on my list are the neuromyths. And the last three are not neuromyths, or at least not to my knowledge at this point. So the three that are not are, um, there are limits to the amount of time individuals can fully attend to information. Sleep plays a critical role in securing new memories. And the act of remembering something increases the chances that it will be remembered again later. Now you're quite a knowledgeable group because you have a pretty good number of people are agreeing that those are probably accurate or as accurate as we think at this point in terms of data. Now your other high ones are these two here which are purple and blue. So they are individuals learn better when they receive information and their preferred learning style and I think there was for example visual, kinetic 
and uh, auditory. And then the other one is short bouts of coordination exercises can improve integration of left and right brain. The others are nice and low, which is great. Now this isn't necessarily a reflection of raw numbers. It's a pretty small scale and I'll give you that later so that it's a bit easier to read um, so that you can see the, the raw numbers. Because we're going to compare it to some research that happened with teachers who we think know a lot about learning, but who might have had some information from neural myths that have, have kind of made their way into the classroom. So this is uh, a big study by Paul Howard-Jones. The first seven items are the same items that you had. And what, what they looked at were teachers from different areas of the world and how many people said agree. And they had the same options you had, agree, disagree, or don't know. Now I'm going to highlight just a few of these. So the first one is the areas where, at least in the UK, but if we look at these numbers across other countries, they're pretty high because this is the percent of people. So we've got you know, over 90% in some instances who agree to the th these three statements. The first two are the ones that you had the highest agreement to, and the second one is the difference between left brain and right brain um, explaining differences amongst learners. Now there's been a lot of, um, within a variety of different kinds of arenas and in the popular press, an awareness of neuromyths out there. So depending on uh, what you might read in terms of the popular press or not, you might have read about neuromyths already. And some of you were savvy and picked out some of the others that are neuromyths. But these three um, quite often get perpetuated in educational settings. And this first one is really controversial about learning styles because it, it does have a very intuitive uh, feeling to it in that we are all individuals and it would make sense that we might find certain information easier. But what the research suggests that even though we might have a preferred way of hearing information, that if we're taught that way, it doesn't actually help us. And, and that what does help us it's learning information from multiple kinds of paradigms. And that links to what I was talking about with how, you know, with long-term potentiation and other kinds of memories, because now what happens is we develop connections amongst auditory, visual, uh, kind of spatial sorts of information in terms of touch. And now we have multiple strong connections. And that makes it more likely that we're going to remember that information later. So it's actually having a diversity of ways that we're being taught that helps us. And it probably helps learners because it means that one of those ways is going to be your favorite way. And you'll kind of feel like you've been included because of that. But actually, when it comes to learning, it's having multiple modes that help us the most. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the, the exercise because this is kind of an unfair question, and that is, it's about the coordination helping, exercise helping the coordination between left and right brain. Exercise doesn't necessarily help that. It's the brain kind of communicating with, it, it, with itself and various connections kind of going on that actually help with learning. But what we do know, which was another one of the questions I gave to you, was that exercise, oh no, I didn't give you an exercise question, 
But what we're learning is that exercise is actually really important for memory. And it seems that you know, having regular exercise or time when you can go out after you've learned something, it's not just probably helpful for how you feel, which can quite often feel better to have a walk or exercise after having quite an intense day, but it seems to help with the, what we call the consolidation of memory, which is kind of helping memories kind of stay around, if you will. It's kind of facilitating some LTP in the background. So, so although this particular one isn't quite right, the general idea of exercise and learning seems to be one that we're getting a lot more data to help with. Uh, the next ones are ones that I think as myths are kind of dying out a bit. The old one of we only use 10% of our brain and children are less attentive after sugary drinks. Both of these we seem to not have a lot of data to suggest that they are the case. And then there's some others that are, that are quite low. Although for some, in terms of looking across different countries, like this one about learning problems, um, not being able to be re uh, remediated by education, it's quite low in the UK, the Netherlands, and then as it, it's a bit higher in other countries. And that just might be what kinds of information people have available at this point in terms of how different kinds of problems with learning might come, where they might come from and whether educational programs help. So these kinds of, of neuromyths are kind of an important conversation to have when thinking about learning because when I had mentioned about sometimes our old ideas come and they get filtered in and it makes it kind of learning new stuff makes it a little bit harder. So trying to talk about some of the things that the neuroscience is suggesting may not be true up front before we start to think about how neuroscience might be applied to our everyday learning or to classroom situations is kind of useful. It's also useful for me to highlight um, something that I, my, my students and other students in my department probably feel like I say way too much. And that is, um, there's quite a lot of research that suggests that if you just talk about neuroscience with any kind of idea, it suddenly becomes sellable. So, you know, there's neuro everything these days. And, and I kind of say to them, well, unless you're investigating something with neuroscience, try not to fall into that trap because it is naturally something just seems, you know, more exciting, more sexy if you have neuroscience next to it. And that's not always the best. And I think as we transition into thinking about applications, I've I've tried to give you some applications that link to the initial story about long-term potentiation and connections and that being uh, a big part of kind of memory, but not all of the things that we do in our educational lives, whether for ourselves or how we design curricula or that sort of thing is necessarily grounded in neuroscience, nor does it have to be. If we have good practices, we should continue them if they are good and effective. So I have a nice little story, but there are lots of other things that we do in learning that are just as effective, even if I don't have a, a nice little neuroscience backstory. Okay, so this is, this is quite a hefty bit of slides that I want to talk about, but I think it's quite an important study to dig into and to think about how, what kinds of things might be really good for our own learning and helping ourselves or others around us learn. 
So uh, John Dunlosky and colleagues did a big meta-analysis. So a meta-analysis is looking at lots of different research that already exists and, and running analyses that look at patterns that exist across multiple studies. And what they wanted to do was to focus on 10 strategies that are very common in learning. And these might happen in a classroom setting, but they also might happen in a revision setting. But they're the things we do to help us learn, help ourselves learn in terms of learning settings. So I'm going to give some of these more explanation time than others. As we're thinking about them, I want you to make your own bets to yourself of which one do you think is going to be the best at the end of the day when we look at all of the uh, analyses. So there, the, these 10 different strategies are kind of show a wide variety of things we might do. So we have things that they've called elaborative interrogation, which is generating an explanation for something. Um, Self-explaining is kind of explaining how new information is linked to old information. Summarizing is just that. It's just kind of creating a summary or a, a, an overview of what has to be learned. Highlighting or underlying. Lining is just that. It's highlighting or underlining things you think are important. There's also a keyword mnemonic. This is really common in medicine where you have to mem remember you know, a lot of things like the, you know, I just had some undergraduates who are training me medics in the second year and they had to know all of the nerves down the, um, out, out the spine and stuff. And so there's common mnemonics for those sorts of things. I think a variety of fields have them to help when you have to it, it pull together a large amount of information. Imagery for text is kind of creating a mental image of, of some information that one has been working on. Rereading is just that. It's actually just opening it up again, starting at the beginning of the chapter and reading it again. Practice testing is basically trying to create a self-test for yourself as a learner. It can also involve writing test questions for yourself, so thinking about what questions might be. Uh, distributed practice is doing a little bit often. So this may be 15 minutes a day or half an hour a day during the week versus, a, let's say, half an hour because it's equal time, half an hour Monday through Friday versus a two and a half gap on one of those days. And then interleaved practice is mixing things up a bit. So for example, if you're learning something in maths, mixing up the kinds of maths problems rather than just focusing on one maths problem the whole session. So these are the 10 things they studied. They looked at them. This is a massive table. It's not meant to have it all down, but it's to show how big the study is. What they looked at is they wanted to think about, is this learning technique good for one situation, for one kind of learning situation? But instead, they wanted to identify learning techniques that work across the board. So some of these techniques may be good in some situations, but not others. But the real interest is, if we're going to really think about the kinds of things that can help us out as learners, let's think about the things that help us out across the board. So they had lots of different kinds of materials to be learned. These are some examples from science definitions to mathematical concepts to diagrams to maps. They had lots of different learning conditions. So what, what's happening in a, in a classroom or a lecture hall when people are trying to learn something? So this situation is direct instruction. It's somebody at the front telling you stuff you should know about. 
but there are lots and lots of different ways that people might set up a learning, um, a classroom or, or a, even a lecture hall in a university. And then they looked at student characteristics because students are individuals and it's really important to think about, well, what kinds of things are going to work for all students, not just for the students who have high abilities or students who struggle with certain kinds of things. I think what they're really interested in is making sure that good learning strategies work for kids who might have various kinds of difficulties. Um, and we have things that we've seen before, like working memory capacity, that is something that varies across individuals. And you can have the real thing, motivation. How much do you really want to learn this new information? And then the last thing they looked at in terms of variety is how is that learning evaluated or assessed? So what kind of, I don't like this word, but test, if you will, is put in at the end. Now, some of the research was very much an experiment setting, so it wasn't necessarily natural classroom-based, but it was set up as a learning experiment. And some of the research was classroom-based. So they had a variety of different kinds of settings as well. Okay, so here's another big table that when you look at the slides, you can think about a bit more. Well, I'm going to show you their big, huge results table, and I'm going to quickly focus you in on the most effective. So quickly, before I do that, I'm going to go backwards. Put down, you know, where are you going to put your money? Which of these do you think is going to be the best? And it's only between you and your paper, but put it down so that you make a, make a claim. Okay, so the evaluation was about how effective these learning techniques are across all these different kinds of settings. So techniques that are either not very effective or only effective in a small number of settings have a low utility on the next, uh, the next graph. Those that are maybe do really well in some settings, but not all settings, have a medium utility, and those that seem to be really good across the board have high. There are two with high ratings, and that's these two. Sorry, that's not quite as clear as it is on my laptop. Practice testing and distributed practice. Practice testing fits quite nicely into what I was talking about with memory. That I mentioned the very act of having to remember something makes it more likely that you're going to remember it again. Now, I'm really careful when I say practice testing. This is not about testing in a way that is always linked to a mark. Or people in education might call that a high-stakes test. This is not that. This is either something that's really low stakes or it's no mark at all. But it is the very act of having to sit and remember something that helps you remember it later. The other reason why people think practice testing is works in terms of helping with learning is it gives you some information about the stuff you've got and the stuff you don't quite have. And so it helps shape the next kind of bits of revision a bit more because there's kind of, oh, I don't know this thing that I, I couldn't answer this question. So that means I maybe need to go back and, and think about it a bit more. Now, distributed practice is an idea of a little bit often. And so this is that, my example of if you did 30 minutes, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, compared to two and a half hours on any one of those days, 
if you're spending 30 minutes each of those five days, the outcomes are much better than if you have a one block of two and a half. And this might be down to things related to attention in that in, in revision sessions or in learning sessions, our attention wanes. So we start out, just like in this lecture, you start out with a lot of attention, and then as we go further and further in time, your attention, it goes down a bit. And so that is something that might happen in our study sessions. The other thing that happens, though, is if you're doing that practice every day, it means every day you have to try to remember some things, remind yourself of some things, and what you're doing is you're reinforcing those connections in terms of the memory and the learning connections. So it's, there's a bit more reinforcement. Now we're going to talk about one of the things that's difficult about these two is that they give us the feeling that our learning has slowed down. So we're going to talk about that a bit later. Now there are three others on this graph that are moderate. Interleave practice, kind of mixing things up a bit. Uh, Self-explanation, uh, which is linking the new information to old information. And elaborative interrogation, which is kind of thinking about the whys. Why, why, does, why do things work this way? There are five, though, on this list that are low. And there are two that at least uh, undergraduate students use a lot. And that is rereading and highlighting. <laughs> and, uh, they're not very good. And the reason why they're not good is because they don't give us the chance of kind of slowing down and engaging with the information. And instead, they actually reinforce a familiarization, a what, what we might call in cognition, a low-level repetition. And somehow we begin to think that things are familiar because they've been going through that sensory store, but we haven't actually paused to, think, to create that memory. And so they give us the illusion that we know the material better than we actually do. And I think rereading is especially that case. Well, I, I don't know it, so I'm just going to reread. No, that doesn't mean that it, there's not a space for going back and trying to look at information that you couldn't remember, like you're doing a practice test and you, you realize there's something you couldn't quite remember and going back to it and thinking about it and then trying maybe some of these other strategies to help, to help kind of reinforce what it means. But just rereading, just going back and just reading it again doesn't help because it just, it just gives us the false sense that it's familiar without actually learning it. Just one question. Yep. Um, I'm going to have to look at it because I don't usually talk about issues of implementation. I did give you this as a reading, or this particular article, because it was available. So you can have a look. But at the top of my head, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> OK, so um, I think that one of the lessons about good learning strategies is that it's kind of, I think of it as two pieces. So um, one is what I call input less, generate more. And what that means is kind of less just exposure to stuff. 
So less kind of reading, watching, and more generation. So the learning strategies that are most effective across the board are those that create learners, a situation where learners have to produce something. So they have to create an explanation for why something works. So they have to link new information to stuff they already know. Or they have to practice uh, recalling it in a, in a practice test situation. And generating is much more effective for long-term learning. Now, it does slow us down. And we'll talk about that before we finish, about the slowing down piece. And it does, don't take this to the extreme, because input is important. There are plenty of things we would not know about the world if someone hadn't discovered them already, and we read about them or we watch about them. So input is, we've got to have that input. But the idea is it's not just about continuing to input information, reading more, watching more, but it's about taking that time to generate that matters. And the other bit, which is the distributed practice, is a little bit often. So the, rather than one mass block, little bits are much more effective in terms of learning. So these link to what Bob Bjork called, in some ways, desirable difficulties. Because these things at the surface slow us down. And they can lead us to think we're not making as much progress as if we did it the old ways that we're used to. But what happens with those old ways and with things like rereading is that it's, it's again, that low-level frequency. It's kind of fooling us that we know something better than we do. So you begin to think we're much more familiar with it. We, we know it, even though we might not. And so the, the kind of the premise behind desirable difficulties is that it's, it's a, it is about kind of engaging in the learning as we're, in, as we're doing it, rather than zooming through it. And so it's, there may be strategic ways where it's important to slow ourselves down and focus on some things rather than zooming through information. But the key is desirable, because not all difficulties are good. And that's what I'm going to kind of talk about a little bit. I'm going to explore this idea of desirable difficulties in learning and kind of talk about how what is difficult and desirable may not be the same for all learners. So first, I'm going to show you a little video with Bob Bjork uh, talking a little bit about this. The term desirable difficulties is a term I came up with over 20 years ago now. And at that time, I was very impressed with various kinds of experimental phenomena that sort of indicated that something that posed challenges for people made them uncomfortable even and seemed to be slowing down the rate of learning, then actually enhanced long-term learning and memory. So the notion is, they're desirable because they enhance the very target of training and instruction, long-term attention, transfer of knowledge. They're difficulties because they pose challenges for the learner, and among those difficulties are spacing repeated study opportunities rather than amassing them, uh, introducing variation in the conditions of learning rather than keeping the conditions constant and predictable, 
interleaving the separate things that are to be learned rather than blocking practice, which is something everybody does in real world settings. And things like feedback, so providing only intermittent feedback rather than constant feedback. All of those things share the same sort of pattern, which is when you contrast those difficulties with often what people actually do, you see the pattern that it appears that people are making slower progress during the acquisition phase. But then when you measure performance at a delay, uh, there's an enhancement. Uh, often people sometimes think it's a matter of uh, making something difficult has positive effects all by itself. It's not really that. The difficulties, the, basically the word desirable is important. A difficulty can be desirable for one person at their present state of knowledge because they're able to respond to it. Whereas another person would not, at, as of yet anyway, have the background knowledge to respond to it adequately. So something called the generation effect is a very good illustration of that. Uh, there's decades of research showing that if I, as a teacher or instructor, could get a student to generate an answer rather than my giving it to them, they'll remember it much better later on. But they have to be able to generate it by virtue of what they know already and the cues an instructor would give them. They have to succeed at the generation. So uh, a problem can be that without an adequate background, you can't succeed at the generation. And at that point, it's not a desirable difficulty, it's an undesirable difficulty. Uh, so for example, in the, in the domain of uh, motor skills, a couple of colleagues, Tim Lee and Mark Wadignoli, have done research which focuses on what they call the challenge point. This is the kind of thing that's right at the right point, given the preparation a learner has, to be the optimal difficulty or optimal challenge. And I'm emphasizing that because sometimes the term has become popular and sometimes people portray it as, if I just make things hard on somebody, uh, they'll learn better. And uh, it's not that so much, it's, it's that these selective difficulties induce the very processes that create long-term retention and understanding. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example of a desirable difficulty and kind of walk through where it might be desirable and where it might not be. And so I'm going to use something called disfluency. So fluency is being able to do something easily. It's a skill we've learned and we're good at it. So um, most of us are fluent readers. We also talk about someone being fluent in a, in a second language, meaning they know another language. Or we might be fluent, we might not use this phrase, but we might be fluent at playing football. We might be really good at it or tennis or something like that. So fluent is where something is, we're able to do with ease. Disfluency is the opposite of that. And so that's where something might be more challenging. Maybe we have a skill that we've not acquired. In psychology research, it's usually something that we put in to disrupt fluency. So we might make a task more difficult, if you will. Um, and I'm going to show you an example, which if you've been around psychology much, you might know already, which is called the Stroop effect.
So this is where I need your participation. So I'm going to ask you to tell me the color of some words. I know you won't do it all in exactly the same pace, but go ahead as fast as you can. Say the color of these words. Okay, that's pretty easy. Now, say the color of these words. <laughs> so, what happens in the Stroop effect is that although, in terms of naming colors, we're experts, um, it, whether we you know, name them in any number of languages, it doesn't matter, but we're all experts at naming colors by now. And so naming the color of stuff is equally easy. But when the color and what we read don't match, like here, reading is this thing we're also really good at. And so these, they basically interfere with each other, and it makes the lower list much more challenging than the top list. And this is an example that psychologists might do to kind of slow down our fluency, and we do it to kind of better understand what's happening as we're making sense of the world around us, as we're taking in and processing information. So I have a colleague and a good friend, Danny Oppenheimer. I say that just because it's, you know, conflict of interest sort of thing. We've, we've been mates since our kind of PhD days. And Danny has a number of studies where he looks at fluency. And one of the um, tasks that he developed was, well, what happens if you have difficult to read words? And in the early days, uh, when there were tonal printers, he used to, when he noticed that the printer was running out of ink and the letters were not clear, he'd, he'd hurry and go and print off a bunch of his stimuli for his experiments so that he'd have a bunch of stimuli. Later on, he realized he could just use really awful text. You know, we have these crazy fonts in Microsoft Word and PowerPoint, and he thought, I'll just use that, that will help. And in a series of studies, he's found that when he uses difficult to read font, it helps with memory, it helps with problem solving, it helps with reasoning, and he's, he's replicated this with undergraduates and in high school classrooms in the US. So he'd been working on this for quite a long time, um, on his own and also with a former PhD student, Adam Alter. And then Valerie Thompson thought, this is great, I really want to try this with my own students. So she designed a research project to kind of extend some of Danny and Adam's initial findings, and she couldn't replicate the effect. Now that was before, again, if you're familiar with psychology, we're going through a bit of what people call a replication crisis. We've not been good at replicating our results, and we have a lot of things that we've thought of as core findings in the field that we're, that we're now discovering are not replicating. This is before that, so Valerie thought, what am I doing wrong? I can't get this effect to replicate. I can't repeat it. So she thought, all right, I, I'm going to drop my extension of what this research is on. I'm just going to go back and run the same experiment. She ran the same experiment, still couldn't replicate it. And now she started to worry what's going on. And then she realized when Danny started his research, he was at Stanford. He was then at Princeton. And both the communities he was working in, in terms of high school students as well as the undergraduates, were maybe students who might do really well in various kinds of, of cognitive tasks. She was in 
a small university in the middle of Canada that might not have the same level of students. So she gave them a cognitive uh, task and she divided the group into four. She had the top 25%, she had the bottom 25%, and then she had the middle 50. And what happened is she found that in the top 25%, a replication that looked very much like Danny and Adam's initial findings, the middle group, the middle 25%, didn't really matter which, one, which way they had it, either easy to read font or difficult to read font. But the bottom 25%, it was the opposite of the initial findings. So the this participants in her research who might have other kinds of things that are already slowing them down, found this additional layer of difficulty too much. And they did much worse when they had the difficult to read font. So taken together, what this suggests to me is that what's useful about a desirable difficulty is that it slows us down so that we're not doing stuff really fast. So my guess is those higher ability participants were reading really fast. And they were reading so fast that they were missing the information. And if you slowed them down with something that was a bit harder to read, they were now able to take in the information a bit better. But for students who might already struggle with reading or keeping information in mind, having an extra thing to slow them down just pushes them over. That's too hard. Now, I think that's a really nice illustration. I'm going to show you another example in a minute, but a nice illustration of how desirable difficulties are really about where, where students, where learners are in the moment. So a second example, which is also Danny's example of disfluency, is linked around the debate about whether or not we should take notes in lectures by hand or with laptops. And in a variety of studies, um, Danny has looked at, and the initial study was basically people came into the psychology lab and they watched a TED talk and they could either create their own notes by hand writing or typing them. And then what happened is they came back a week later and they were given the notes that they had created in the session to revise and, and try to remember for a little quiz at the end of the session. And he found that those that had handwritten notes did much better than those who did typewritten notes. And it follows a very similar sort of pattern in that we have limits in how much we can write with our hand. We're much slower, most of us, for write handwriting than typing. And if you have a limit of how much you can write, you have to make decisions there and then about what is important. And it's a different kind of engagement with material if you have to make those decisions there and then, than if you don't. If you can type, and especially if you're very fast, you don't have to make any decisions. You're just basically in, out, and go, and you're not actually processing that information. And an extreme example of that would be court stenographers who type every word but rarely remember what happens in court. Um, and so it is, it's, it's kind of that slowing students down is really important. Now, at the same time, if a student has any kind of difficulty, maybe they have difficulty handwriting, or there are other kinds of learning difficulties that are present, then it's probably not a great idea to slow them down. And it's probably better to give them the information, give them a tool that will engage them. So the handwriting might not be appropriate for every student, 
and it's thinking about which students are going to benefit because that's slowing down and thinking. And even if you might have difficulty with handwriting, if you're using a laptop, it's trying to remind yourself, I can't just type verbatim, but I've got to choose what is important from this information. And the desirable difficulties, I think, really fit nicely into what we know about long-term potentiation, what we know about the connections and the insulation, the myelination of neurons in terms of facilitating learning. What they do is they keep us engaged in the material a bit longer or in something like a distributed practice where we do 30 minutes every day rather than one chunk of two and a half hours, it keeps us coming back to the information. We kept, every time we come back, we have to try to remember what we've been doing and we're doing that remembering more often when we do it every day rather than once. And so it's an example in terms of the story of how thinking about engagement and how learners are engaging with material matters in terms of helping them learn. Now, the other reason I chose the, the, these kinds of learning ideas was not just because it links really nice to the neuroscience, but it's also because a couple of, well, it started as two and now it's four, uh, cognitive scientists have developed an amazing resource on how to take the best learning strategies, so the things that are represented in the Dunlosky paper, and practically apply them to everyday learning. So they, as an initial, they had a, a grant through the National Science Foundation to kind of basically making it so that the kinds of stuff that researchers know is available to the public. And that grant helped them develop this website, learningscientist.org. And on this website, they have videos about the best ways to learn information, which are the ones that we saw in the Dunlosky paper. And they have examples for how you might do that in different kinds of contexts and lovely little posters and bookmarks and resources for teachers as well. They have worked incredibly hard to make this available to all of us and not just to the people who study learning. And I think it's, it's such an amazing resource. Uh, one of the creators of this project, Gana Weinstein, uh, when a long time ago I was an a postdoc at the University of Warwick and she was an undergraduate and she comes back to the UK a lot and um, she does do uh, conferences for teachers and that sort of thing to kind of also make this information even more accessible and usable but there's so much there it's just a treasure trove of information. So that's kind of a wrap-up of the key things that we were talking about today. I did promise you, I'm, I'm gonna just show it to you, but I, I'm not going to make you read it. I have some of my favorite videos. All of the videos that you watched today, I have the YouTube links, but I have a bunch of other videos. So when the, the slides are available to you through Weekend University, if any of these topics are of interest to you, there are a bunch of videos kind of talking about it. If you're a skeptic about how good learning strategies are, or sorry, learning styles and other neuromyths. I've got a bunch of videos explaining the science um, behind that as well. So that's for you to engage with some of these ideas later as and when you're interested. Um, so I left a bit of time for questions. Um, I think what I'll do is I'll 
answer questions until two o'clock um, if you have them and then we'll split up and if there are additional questions or if people want to ask me questions one-to-one uh, -one, you can come and chat with me after are there any questions yes oh yes yes there's a microphone in the back that's fine yeah hi you know you did the test with the uh, students on the typefaces yep so surely if you've got students from Harvard and Princeton, their self-efficacy is going to be greater and their belief in just doing it better is going to be greater. So didn't it just improve, didn't that sort of tend to show that smarter students are smart and less smart students are not smart? Well, no, I don't think that. So what I think it does is that if you're a really good student, you are probably processing information really fast. And no matter how good you are as a student, that's not good for learning. So for high ability students, it's important to slow down because that helps with learning. And I think at, even at, at um, universities that might have top students, there's still a difference there between those who do better, you know, even in that community, there are differences in performance. And what is likely the case is that it's that the students who have figured out how to kind of engage and slow down even in their own sessions are probably those who are then in the end doing better than the students who are just continuing to read more information. Uh, so it, I don't think it's that it shows that some students are better because it's actually I think a problem for high ability students is that they, they take in the information too fast. And I would say, if we're thinking about students at university or before university, that might, their teachers think they're really clever, but they don't do well on tests. One of the problems could be that they process information really fast. And that if they had some tools to help them figure out how to slow down, they would probably do better on their tests. That's, that's not fully proven by all or supported by enough research yet because this is still early days but i think that it's not about smart versus not smart it's about taking in that information for enough time to let those memories form thank you for the talk um on the same point uh, desirable difficulties um and though it sounds terrible to say it, but for those bottom 25% who you said have perhaps other, other difficulties already, already in place, what sort of approach then can you use with those, with those same people who perhaps you know, you're, you're struggling with already, um, but, but clearly you have to get something done at the same time? Yeah. So if you can offer some advice on that. Sure. That so part of that is going to be dependent on the reason why there are difficulties because it's not quite oftentimes for students that are struggling there are lots of re reasons why they're struggling so part of it will depend on that but if we just focus in on Valerie's study that bottom group did better when they had the easy to read font so having extra stuff that slows them down is probably bad and I think um, quite oftentimes textbooks for students are designed to kind of they're not necessarily designed with cognition in mind, and there might be lots and lots of stuff to distract them, lots of crazy fonts and all that. And it's probably better for students who struggle to have quite plain text in terms of the information. They probably need other things to engage them, but having text in, the, in that small window 
just having plain text is better. Now, there are a variety of other things that might matter for students who are struggling that are going to be much more tailored to, their, to the, what, what the individual problems are. But just speaking in terms of the hard-to-read text, that would be one example. So I'm going to ask, because I've recently seen some data, when you let, so in terms of, of contribution in situations like this, we tend to have a bias and women don't talk as much and it doesn't matter who's up here. And we've made the mistake, and I'll take credit for it, uh, because if we let a male ask a question first, it means women ask far fewer questions the whole session. So I think we have to have our next question from a female so that we get a nice equitable contribution. Well, so Valerie's study wouldn't have looked at that. My, a lot of the research I do f includes what you're calling inhibitory control, which broadly speaking falls under that term, the central executive that I talked about in terms of working memory. So the, the, the things that help us move our attention to something or switch between things, ignoring distractors, those sorts of things. And Although there's not data looking specifically at that, from other research that I have done, that is also really important in terms of learning. So there's definitely going to be a subset of learners who really struggle with keeping on task, ignoring distractors, being able to move smoothly from one task to the other. There's also um, some colleagues I have at, uh, at the University of Cambridge who work in the Cognition and Brain Sciences unit do work specifically on working memory itself, that how you manipulate information in your mind at one time. And they, that's another thing that students might struggle with in terms of how well they can hold things in mind and, and use that information to solve problems. So these are all a variety of things that students might find difficult uh, in terms of learning. So where, where it, no, what I think, from the data, though, I think it's probably early days. Something like distributed practice, that little bit often, I think does help all learners, even if they struggle with inhibition, and maybe more so because they only have to attend for a short amount of time. Um, I'm going to just add a little bit. There's a, a, a teacher in Leeds who's been, do, who's been doing a big study looking at spaced practice in science classrooms in secondary school, so key stage three and four. And um, I saw him at a conference last, well, this past week, and um, I was kind of hearing about where the results were, because when I had seen him a year before, he was just starting the study. And he said that one of the things that he finds the most encouraging is how much more interested and how much more skill the lowest ability group have gained. Out of, out of doing this distributed practice sort of thing. He said that it, it is somehow, it's helping to reinforce their learning better than having these big gaps. Can I just, um, isn't that also that study where they have five minutes or 10 minutes where they're actually relaxed and not doing anything else? 
it might be what he's doing, but I, I can't remember, because I mean, it's not been published, this particular study, it's just being analyzed as we speak, so it, I, I can't quite remember that little bit. But I think there's something about, with some of these, some desirable difficulties like spacing practice, probably good for everybody. Uh, regardless of if you have control issues. I think some of the data on practice testing also suggests that it's good for everybody, even students who, who are having difficulties, because what practice testing does is it gives you some information about what you know, and having an experience with what you know helps build confidence the next time. And that's really important for students who struggle. <coughs> Should we do one? We'll try to we'll try to be balanced. There's oh, we'll have this lady next. So that Hi. Um, I was just wondering to what extent, what is known or what do you think can be applied to implicit learning as well? So I don't tend to talk too much about implicit learning because it doesn't get a, a big value in most of my audiences, which would be teachers, because they want to know, I, I want to have some evidence that somebody knows it. Um, I have done some work in implicit learning back in my PhD, and I would say that I think it's slightly different in terms of things like understanding, which is going to be important in an explicit test. So it's not just can you remember something, but it's the understanding, which is what we tend to look for when we evaluate when it comes to implicit learning, I think uh, it's quite often a frequency sort of thing is important. And it's also that we pick up a lot of information without engaging in it. But I think when we're, so I think some of those things might matter a little bit, but I think that what you don't get, which is what some of the strategies really help foster, is that deeper level of understanding. Implicit learning doesn't tend to be a deep level of understanding. It tends to be much more of a familiarity with something. memory formation so that you really forget a part of that for reprogramming your brain and the part of um, trauma. So you have a traumatic memory and you want to forget it. Um, so on a molecular level, you, you talked about forgetting memories, you talked about the decay theory and uterectus <laughs> interference. Can you talk a little bit more about process of forgetting memories? Sure, so I don't have experience with traumatic memories, but I'm going to use a different kind of memory, which is a called a flashbulb memory, and that's something that potentially is where you have a big event and people tend to feel like they remember a lot around it. So a couple of things that have been flashbulb memories in the past have been things like uh, JFK's assassination, um, when people woke up and found out that Diana had been killed in a traffic accident, 9-11, uh, 
the bombings in 2005 in London, and there are other things that within communities you know, that have happened. And in cognition, we call those, in terms of the memories that you have around that day, flashbulb memories. And quite often those things are traumatic. They're not as traumatic as other kinds of personal experiences would be, but I'm going to think about that as, as an extension. So what's really interesting about um, flashbulb memories is that one of the things we think might um, make it feel like we have a really strong memory of these events is because of the emotion that was linked up with it. And there's some evidence that when you've got kind of emotional things happening at the same time that you're remembering something, that those memories might stick a bit better because of the kind of biochemical things that are going on in the brain. But one of the things that is fascinating about flashbulb memories is although we believe very strongly in their accuracy, we tend to have a lot of flaws. And my favorite example uh, comes from 9-11. Uh, so I was a PhD student when it happened. And um, we were talking a couple of weeks later about flashbulb memories in a session, a research session. And one of the academics who is a memory researcher started talking about flashbulb memories and how, how they work. And then in, a couple seconds later, started talking about how what happened to him on 9-11 and how, you know, but it was so close, I must remember it accurately. And his graduate student, who was part of that story, said to me later, he got things wrong. And, and uh, we kind of laughed about it because we thought it was this perfect example of somebody who even researches memory, who understands the limit of what we remember in traumatic experiences and still strongly believed that everything he reported to us having happened, happened just that way. And, um, and I, what happens, I think, with flashbulb memories, which is somewhat like what happens with our other memories of things that happen in our lives, is that we fill in gaps. And we fill in gaps based on our experiences, and that can make a traumatic event feel even worse because we, put, we fill in sometimes gaps based on what we probably would have gone through if we went through that event. And so it does make it really difficult to let go of a traumatic memory because we've, we've filled in gaps, we have this really nice story, and we have an emotional element that comes with it. So just like a flashbulb memory, it's really easy to, to, for, for us to hang on to it and believe that it's absolutely true and, and difficult, which in our experience it definitely is. But that's why it's hard for, harder for us to let go. And I can't talk about the, the psychotherapeutic end of it because I don't have any experience in that at all. Well, I think this is possibly, but what is difficult with a traumatic injury is there's a huge emotional component. So this is where we need a clinician to kind of talk about that because it, it, there is a huge emotional element that goes with it that I can't talk about in terms of how do you do it. If we're talking about ordinary learning and memory, we can undo it by trying to unpack it or have different experiences that teach us about it. 
but with traumatic memories they're really quite different and saying oh just go have different experiences is really trite I don't want to, to say that because I don't think that works in an instance where there's a huge emotional component sure um, the point you made about your colleague that he's researching and he still got it wrong isn't the problem like gener generally that kind of subject object like is the same so how can you observe yourself yes. like your mind is cheating on you and you how would you know because it's well, I think that's, I mean, this is, those of us who study cognition find that's really fascinating because the mistakes that we say that, that learners make are mistakes that we make, right? And we, even though we know about learning, we know about cognition. So this is an example of memory. There are other examples of researchers I know who have illustrated how they make poor decisions even though they're, they research decision making um, is, is that it's just, it's sometimes really difficult. These are things that are from our cognitive system. They've been good for us in some ways, but they make learning other things a challenge. And so we, we have that challenge, even if we're experts. Well, it's also because if you look at other people and you do study, you're an observer, right? You're outside of those. You sure. look at it, then it's yourself. It, yeah, you're feeding it through. So it kind of it's, it is hard. So we have to do a little bit of a balance. So we should make sure our last question goes to a, a lady. I think there's a lady here with a yellow jacket. Thank you for a fascinating talk. Um, I wanted to ask about um, the desirable difficulties. Um, and I understand it's desirable because although it slows people down, later on performance is enhanced. And I was wondering what the performance measures were sure. and whether the slowing down was to do with being able to be more creative rather than just apply facts and procedures? Yeah, so cognitive scientists, we don't like to think about creativity that much. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're experimentalists. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's great data on the creativity end in terms of what's happening. Uh, but I'm going to answer your first question in terms of outcome measures. So there have been a variety of outcome measures. A lot of the stuff that Bob Bjork did in the 90s and early noughties is just a memory test. He basically just said, how much can you remember? And he had people rehearsing and practicing lists of information, either in one big chunk or across time. Um, but we've seen it evaluated since then in lots of different kinds of ways in terms of the distribution. So a lot of it is memory based in terms of how, how we evaluate it, but it's moved on to a bit more in terms of understanding and you know, kind of in-depth kinds of questioning rather than, um, rather than just a basic tell me the list. Um, and, and potentially more of the stuff that's been in the distributed practice arena has been in in classroom settings has been much more in that kind of more advanced understanding. You didn't say this, but I think one of the problems with this general idea is we risk as cognitive scientists ignoring motivation. Now the big Dunlusky paper, they looked at motivation, but we don't always look at that in basic cognitive science. So I have a, a doctoral student who's looking at retrieval practice actually. So she's a head teacher at a school and her students and teachers have agreed to do a project where they're looking at retrieval practice. But instead of just looking at how much better they might do, which they're all hoping that they will do, she's really interested in whether or not retrieval practice helps with test anxiety. So you would think that if you give students more tests, 
and they're already kind of anxious, that's going to be really bad. But she's thinking, but if you turn it into the more tests don't really count that much, they're low stakes, and you talk about why you're doing them, does that help students when they get to the exams that are high stakes in terms of SATs and other kinds of big exams in terms of reducing their anxiety? And it's an unknown. We don't know, and there's nobody who has kind of made that connection between those two literatures at this point. So I think there's a number of kind of elements that there's still more research. You know, this is a term that's 20 odd years old, but it's still a lot more research that can go on to inform our understanding. So I think that is now three o'clock. So I should let you make sure that you get your break. I'm happy to answer a few individual questions if you have them. But otherwise, thank you everyone for your attention.